Hey everybody, welcome to Research Nuggets, episode three. Uh, I'm Eamon Powers. I'm Jeremy McLaughlin. <laughs> Today we're talking to Jason McDonald from Brigham Young University, and he's uh, he's going to take us through an article that he recently published last year called I Can Do Things Because I Feel Valuable. It's an authentic project experiences and how they matter to instructional design students. It's a, it's a phenomenon. I, I can never say phenomenological. I'm just like terrible at it. Phenomenology. Phenomenology. Yeah. Phenomenology. And then phenomenological. Yeah. It's it, oh, you're like, what you're like said. Nemo. You're like <laughs> I, dude, Nemo I talking am. about anemones. So, it is exactly that. So he, he did a, a phenomenological case study. Adam um, boy. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. I, I'm going <laughs> to earn those letters after the name, man. That's right. Um, <laughs> And uh, outlining kind of an instructional designer's kind of personal experience with uh, through an authentic uh, training activity. And it's really great. Uh, Jason's just a ridiculously fantastic guy. Uh, he was able to kind of, uh, you know, uh, overcome my ridiculous meandering questions, as well as provide really some solid insight into some fields and some journeys that we, you know, maybe don't consider all the time. Um, all this is today mostly qualitative. So qualitative folks, this is for you. Uh, I think he outlines a couple really solid methodologies uh, that I think anyone in the instructional design field would be really interested in participating with uh, or, you know, getting some info, info on. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is episode three of Research Nuggets. I'm Jeremy McLaughlin. I've got Eamon Powers with me here. And today we are interviewing Dr. Jason McDonald. So welcome. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you. I really am uh, pleased to join you and looking forward to the conversation. I am an associate professor in the Department of Instructional Psychology and Technology at Brigham Young University. So uh, Provo, Utah, is where I am right now, call this home. It's a beautiful snowy day out here. And um, uh, I've been, so I've been on the faculty here at BYU for about five and a half years now. And then I had about a 15 year or so career uh, in, inst in instructional design or training or instructional media development before then. So I've, I've been associated with a field like this for a little bit more than two decades now. That's awesome. So it is awesome. How did you, how did you end up? What, what's what's your your story arc to ending up as a as a professor? How did you end up in academia? How did you know five year old Jason go from hopes? That, I I think there are very few of us who ever grow up and like yeah I I want to be a professor. I really like the robes. I mean that's kind of <laughs> who I am. But like how how did you get to yeah, your speak desk for yourself, now? Jeremy? Yeah. Dude, I mean. <laughs> Plug for the Bergen Society on Twitter. Like that's <laughs> or or instructional design too, right? I mean, or instructional yeah. design too. I mean, no no yeah. five year old that I know of is into this field or even knows about this field. So yeah, it's a great question. Um, so maybe a couple of there, there's a couple of trajectories that converge. I, I did grow up around the university. So my father was an administrator. So I was I was actually very familiar with university life. From the time I was very young, he he wasn't on the faculty, he was an administrator, but I did see those kinds of things essentially my whole life. Um, but in terms of this field in particular, when I was an undergraduate student, I just had a part-time job as uh, as kind of a sales trainer, right? So, you know, helping uh, people just kind of learn how to talk to each other and, and pitch their ideas and pitch their, their product and their point of view. Um, 
And I loved it. I just dug it. It was phenomenally enjoyable to me. Uh, I liked teaching, but I didn't think I wanted to be a teacher in the classroom just because I didn't know if I could support my family and those kinds of, I mean, it's every, everything that people say about teaching, right? It's such a noble profession, yeah. but just, we don't do a great job taking care of teachers in this country. Sure. Um, but anyway, this part-time job, it kind of clued me into there. Well, there's other things related to education that aren't teaching. And so I asked around uh, the, 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 you know, like the supervisors, the full-time people who I was working with. I said, well, if I wanted to do something like this, you know, curriculum development or training or, uh, we were starting just to get into online kinds of things. This is about 1997, mm -hmm. 1998. Uh, I said, what, what would I do for that? And they said, well, you know, a lot of us are graduate students in this program at BYU uh, called Instructional Psychology and Technology. And I said, hey, that, that sounds awesome. So I looked into it and uh, got my master's uh, in 2003 uh, and then my doctorate in 2006 is when I finished that up. And as part of grad school, I decided I kind of do like this research thing. I'd, I'd love to be a professor. So I um, started looking for academic positions, but then had a friend say, hey, you know, I just turned down a job at a, as a project manager for a, a media development organization. You really, you really had to go talk to them before you pull the trigger on this academic thing. So I did. <laughs> and uh, I got that job. And I spent about a decade there. Uh, and then an opportunity came to come back into academics. And I said, I just got to do it. I just love working with students. I, I love that ethos. I love that environment. And so like I said, I've been here about five and a half years now. It's fun going back to Hogwarts, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, that's, I think we are all there, right? Um, so hey, Jason, it was really fantastic. Like a uh, Super appreciate, you know, the perspective because like, you know, in anything, it's like the context that surrounds people's experience, like guides them on their place. It's like, you know, I mean, like we get to where we're going, but uh, by, by, by the journey we went on. Right. So but we're here today on Research Nuggets to talk about research. Right. And you've done some really fantastic research over the past few years. Uh, and today what we wanted to kind of focus on is this uh, recent article you put out uh uh, called I can do things because I feel valuable authentic project experiences and how they matter to instructional design students and what we like to do uh, on our you know fancy podcast here is from your perspective you know maybe give us that super high level view uh, of like what this was about um, 60 second almost like overview and then like you know where did the idea come from what interests you about this and then you know why you use this type of methodology to do the study yeah so the, the kind of the headline of the paper is that uh, in instructional design, in many fields, authentic projects are a thing, right? So internships or class assignments that mimic or very closely approach real world contexts, um, uh, part-time jobs, uh, capstone projects, right? All of these things are just part of this field as well as, like I said, many other fields. That's not new. Uh, but what I think is new is I think we talk about and think about those things uh, almost as a, uh, well, very deterministically. You know, if students go through this authentic project, it is automatically a good for them. There, there is nothing, you know, it's, you know, they have experience A and they will have outcome B. Uh, and mm. that's just our rhetoric around these things. I, I don't think any of us really believe that when we really question ourselves on it and probe, none of us really believe that these things are deterministic, but, but we talk about it in the sense of, 
you know, we, we almost don't have any choice but to learn if we go through these experiences. Mm, and this yeah. article, this article uh, is it's a case study of a student that I call Abby. And it's, uh, it's a qualitative slash phenomenologically inspired look at Abby's experience on an authentic project and how she started with a lot of hopes due to partially the environment she was in and partially her own response to the environment. It became a place that became very constraining to her over time. But then again, partially due to the support of a great mentor, as well as a change in her attitude the experience turned around again, right? So there was a twist and turn both directions from promise to constraints back to promise and enabling a great outcome. I mean, in her case, it ended up being a great outcome. But I wanted to write this paper to highlight that these uh, educational experiences, as valuable as authentic educational experiences are, they're not automatic goods. And there are things that both the people organizing them as well as the students participating in them need to be deeply aware of going into it in order to help ensure that it is a good thing. And uh, it ha it, it's very agentic on both sides that both the people participating as well as the people organizing have to put have to be very intentional and very thoughtful and very willing to meet each other halfway uh, if we really do want these authentic experiences to have the benefit that we kind of all assume that they do. So I think from what I've seen in, in my years in K-12, there's always this push for... Um, making sure that we're, <laughs> I, I, I always hate the thing of like, you know, stating the objective at the beginning of the lesson so that the student knows where we're going. Student doesn't care. So there's this, this <laughs> idea that like, well, Hey, if we put it in a, in a real world context, now we can get past the algebra one comeback of every student, including, including the nerds that really liked algebra one. Cause they're a lot of my really good friends, but like, well, where am I ever going to use this? This real world experience, boom, already that discussion's off the table. Here's where you're going to use it. Why, why do we keep falling in this trap of doing these authentic experiences when we know they aren't really authentic? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Jeremy. You know, and it actually brings to mind another paper that um, I recently had come out where we we call them authentic, we call them academically authentic experiences, right? They have some affordances, <laughs> they have, they have yes. some trappings of real life, but they're not real life. You're going to get a grade. That in and of itself means it's not really the same as real life, right? You're going to get an A, B, C, D, or F on this thing, right? As well as lots of other things that really chip away at the authenticity. I think relevancy certainly is one reason we go back to these experiences. I think that's what you were alluding to. I think another um, reason is that people, um, they, especially when we start to get to the collegiate level, pe people are anticipating they're going to have a, a career or a, a, you know, a job in a somewhat related area to what they're learning, right? I mean, especially graduate school, I think that's the case. And so I think often we say, let's immerse them in the environments now that they'll be working in to kind of bootstrap them over those initial onboarding kinds of experiences so that they can start to, you know, experience real work before they actually get to the real workplace. Um, and I don't think it's a bad idea, right? I mean, I think that there's a lot of great reasons to give people these academically authentic experiences, um, but they're certainly not a cure-all. They're not a, you know, they're, they're not, 
you know, not this, not this magic pill that solves every problem that ails education. Right. Yeah. In, in physics, we always joked, you know, there, there are a couple of, um, tried and true hand waves to like get it into the academic sense. So like here, how much milk can a cow produce? Well, assume a spherical cow, right? Cause <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Um, if you're going to do anything in your first two years of physics, assume there's no friction, not, not practical, right? right? Just absolutely not. So what's some of the stuff that your, your participant that, that you were examining in your paper, Abby, what did she run into? What were the, the frictions that we were assuming she was going to be able to ignore, but, uh, didn't work out. Yeah. So one, one big one. Uh, so she was doing instructional design work on a, an educational simulation design team, right? So it was interdisciplinary. She was coming in with the educational perspective, writing learning objectives, writing teacher preparation materials, checking for instructional soundness, you know, all the things that a good instructional designer should do. Very important things, but very intangible things, right? She was not writing code like her colleagues were. She was not writing, she was not uh, drawing graphics, designing graphics like the graphic designers were. Uh, she wasn't even writing narrative like the story designers were, right? And so her work was just very intangible. And so the other students primarily that she was working with appreciated her, but there was kind of this us versus them that slowly developed over time because it was clear to everybody that her work was different than theirs. At the end of the day, they had code that was evaluated. Right? They could quality check the code and is this good code or not? And people would look at what Abby was doing and be like, uh, yeah, I guess that's good, but is it helping us get any better code? And especially yeah, it, the it felt like that scene it. in it felt like that scene in office space where you know he's he's in talking to the two bobs and he's like, So what what would you say you do here? Right, and that's right. Well, yeah, I mean, taking taking something from the engineers to the clients, okay, yeah, actually important, but like it's, it's a bad analogy to like, you know, delegitimize what, what she was doing. Cause she was doing real work. And of course the character in the, in the movie was kind of superfluous, but right. It's, it's that same sort of vibe from everybody else in, in the group that she was working with that they were like, well, okay, what, what are you making? You aren't coding. You aren't doing, what would you say you do here? So, yeah. Well, and so where the analogy holds is this is certainly how she started to see the world, right? She started to see the world as everyone kind of pointing to her saying, are you really adding value on this team? And uh, we as the faculty in the room would assure her, oh, no, you are adding value. But it's kind of hard to believe that when the vibe you're getting from everyone around you is, yeah, but, you know, at the end of the day, I produce something. What did you produce? Right. Uh, and so that started to, um, I mean, that she just started to feel kind of boxed in. Another thing that happened is she would have ideas for how to improve the simulations. And again, great ideas from, from a great instructional design perspective. And the response, even from some of the other faculty in the group were, uh, yeah, great idea. We just don't have time or great idea, way too hard to code or, you know, whatever else you can imagine coming out of those conversations. And so she just started to feel a little bit, well, why am I doing this if all of my ideas are being met with great idea, but. Do you think some of that, so I think any instructional designer out there is 
you know, we, we always have this kind of unique relationship with subject matter experts. And in, in this case, we're talking about the people coding the simulation and, and such. And, and so do you think some of it was just her coming at it from an angle that wasn't familiar with like the, almost like the business mechanics of dollars and cents? Like, yeah, hey, it would be great if every airplane was made out of titanium, but uh, that's like, you know, 15 times more expensive than aluminum, right? You know, so you see, like, there, I think that sometimes instructional designers like go through and that hurts them in that they're suggesting things that like on, on paper, you know, it sounds great to talk about, but in paper, like it's just not even feasible. Right. And then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like, yeah, you know, you're, Oh, I can't do it. Cause I'm just, you know, we can't do anything. Right. And then that's a, that's a problem. I mean, was that something that you found in Abby's kind of responses or what do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, a few things though, in response, one, again, she is a, you know, she's a graduate student, right? So part, part of this experience is not as important as what you just said, Eamon, you know, it's, it's not the same. It's an academic experience as well as trying to mimic authentic experience. And so giving her an opportunity to see her ideas come to fruition seems to me as an important thing to have as part of an academic experience. Um, yeah. Another response I would offer is some of her suggestions actually did uh, align really, really well with what this team wanted, and they had kind of okay. lost sight of it themselves, right? So just one example is one of the mm. purposes of their simulation was we want to give uh, women in particular, high school girls and you know introductory uh, women in introductory college courses, a better experience with engineering um, uh, topics, right? Cybersecurity in particular, this one. And in the simulation, just for ease of coding, they called the the intern, you know, who's the student in the simulation, junior, right? And Abby would say, I, I don't know any high school girl or college age woman who wants to be called junior. And so she went back and she said, can we, can we figure out a way to use their name? Or can we figure out even just maybe a more generic term? And they're like, eh, we've moved on from that. It's not too important for us to go back. So a great suggestion, mm, yeah. a great suggestion to meet their objective, a great suggestion, a suggestion, even from just an equity and inclusion perspective, it was kind of shot down because the rest of the team wasn't interested in it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, it, so earlier you were t making this point about, you know, um, kind of the deterministic element of these authentic experiences. Like, um, I wonder, sometimes I wonder like how much if that is because we, we've got this kind of interesting relationship with uh, prescriptive concepts, right? You know, like thou shalt do this and you will receive that. Uh, but, but when we're talking about authentic experiences, especially like, you know, on job stuff or anything like that, I think one of the intangible goals that is maybe implicit in those is really the almost the informal in the, the informal side of like interpersonal dynamics. And so like, I'm, in, I'm interested in like what your thoughts or what, what Abby's experience was in these kind of realms that when they were butting up against like the, the limits of the authentic experience, if you will. Right. And is that a contributing factor as to why maybe they weren't as effective as this, obviously the designer who designed the authentic experience, you know, wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's. If this doesn't quite get at what you're asking here, Eamon, let's. No, you're good. Know, direct, <laughs> he asked you seven questions in there, and we. Need yeah, my bad. This is uh, this is my thing. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> so let's, let's just start talking and see what happens, right? So. Yes. Um, 
So let me share a little bit more about the research design, because I think that may help inform, you know, why I'm going to answer some of the other things the way that I am. So this was, I wouldn't call this true phenomenology, but it was certainly phenomenologically inspired, this research study, um, where uh, I'm not, I wasn't interested in just Abby's perceptions of her experience or, you know, any uh, kind of internal private thoughts or feelings she had about the experience. Although how she reacted to the experience certainly became a big part of it, right? Neither was I interested solely in um, how people were treating her. Again, although that became a very important part of the, you know, the outcomes. What I was interested in was kind of this space of, of trying to articulate her experience of being in this kind of a world, you know, being in this authentic or academically authentic world. What what did she encounter that was very real to her that affected both mm. her individual perceptions as well as affected the way that people on the team treated her later on, right? So phenomenal, phenomenologically inspired studies kind of sit in the space of there is no real separation between us and the world, right? What right. manifests yep. in the world has a lot to do with us as well as what possibilities the world offers. We don't necessarily get to choose all of those, right? And so it's this weird kind of infinite loop of, um, or this loop at least of, um, uh, you know, just trying to break down the, the typical, we are individual, the world is completely separate from us mentality that we so often seem to have in any kind of scientific enterprise. That becomes important, I think, for your original question, Eamon, um, because I think in education, we very much live in a tradition where we, especially in instructional science or learning sciences or any of these, these fields that have a, a more scientific bent on things, we very much approach it from the perspective of um, there is a very distinct world apart from us. And we are individuals who in some fashion exist wholly apart from that world, right? And so the world mm -hmm. can uh, have an effect on us the way that one billiard ball has an effect on another billiard ball, like in the physics experiments, right? Um, and so I think we do just tend to default, and you see this throughout the research literature, we tend to default to deterministic ways of viewing the efficacy of instructional strategies or instructional methods. We see mm. them as essentially having the effect of one billiard ball hitting another billiard ball, and we can predict exactly where that second billiard ball is going to go using physics. And that's just not true. And any first-year teacher knows that's not true, but we have such a hard time, I think, breaking out of it in educational research discourse that one of the reasons why I like to do studies like these, this is to complicate that a little bit and to try to point out some factors that say, well, no, it wasn't just Abby was being acted upon by the world around her, nor was it just that she had a bad attitude. It was this, uh, it, was, it was this inner, it, they were two sides of the same coin, right? Her response and the response of the people around her were so intimately connected, it doesn't even make sense to talk about them as separate things anymore. They're manifestations of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So how do we get away from building student experiences that are so deterministic? I mean, it's going to be messy, right? We're going to have to, you know, at the end of the lesson, at the end of the experience, at the end of the project, talk about, well, hey, we weren't able to deliver all of these things that we thought we were going to do. You weren't able to calculate this number that I thought you were going to get. How do we build that as a norm? How do we make that okay for learning situations? Great question. And I would say that's one of the, that is probably one of the reasons why people 
are interested in these, again, academically authentic or authentic experiences is because they think it will, that messiness will have allow for those kinds of outcomes. I think the challenge is that we fundamentally just don't want to let go of that control, right? We want to, we for good reasons. It's not because we're bad people or edu- educators are bad people. They want the students to have a good experience, right? They want right. them to come away having something productive and valuable happening. And so I, a lot of educators I work with, including myself, get to this moment of just a fundamental tension of, oh, I could let this go bad. But if I let this go bad, how bad is it really for the students? Like, can they salvage any good out of this if I let this go the way that looks like it's going to go? And that encourages me as an educator to go in and try to clean it up and try to tidy up some of those loose ends and try to maybe have a conversation with them of, hey, I know it's not doing exactly what we want. Let's reflect on it a little bit. And again, those are all great things, but they are backing away a little bit from this, um, you know, this possibility of just what good could happen if we just let the world emerge the way that it's going to emerge. So you had brought up a really interesting point in your description earlier about the things that kind of took Abby through the journey. And one of those things was, uh, I think, very similar to what you were just kind of describing is this mentorship role uh, in these authentic experiences. Maybe maybe expand on that a little bit for the listeners out there. <laughs> yeah. So at, at one point, I mean, Abby was just ready to quit this whole thing. She She called herself a bump on the log. And again, as, us as observing her, she wasn't. She she was participating in meetings, right? She was being given assignments, maybe not the funnest assignments, um, but she she. So I don't think she was lying to us. I think she legitimately just when she looked around her, just didn't see anything good happening. So she felt like she was a bump on the log. She was experiencing the world, maybe as a better way to say it, as, as she was just a bump on the log. But one of the professors that she was working with on the team wasn't me. You know, I, I, have, I was involved, certainly, but it, it was another one of the professors that was overseeing the simulation project. Um, he is one of the most student-centered individuals I ever met. I mean, he really does come from, from the position of, if we do right by the students, everything else is going to take care of itself. Whether that be the research we're trying to do alongside, or the students' grades, or their scholarship, or whatever else. He said, let's just do right by the students. And, and that was just his fundamental orientation to his, his craft as a, you know, as a member of the faculty. And there was no one moment where he um, said, oh, Abby's having a bad experience. Maybe I had to turn this around. He was just treating her the way that he wanted to treat her. He was just treating her the way that he thought a student should be treated. And so um, that started to build her up. And in particular, uh, Abby had, uh, she was taking a project management class as she was finishing her degree and she needed to be a, a scrum master, as right? so it was an agile methodology class, and she needed to be a scrum master for a project. And so she went to this professor and said, hey, can I be a scrum master and fulfill my assignment? And he just latched onto that. I mean, he just, he not only said yes, like the next time they met as a team, he started calling Abby the scrum master uh, and referring mm. to her as that and deferring to her and say, well, Abby, what what should we do next? You know, so you're our scrum master, you tell us what we should be doing now, right? And so giving her these opportunities and kind of elevating her status in front of the other students very visibly. Um, mm. Both built her confidence, yes, but built the confidence of the other students around her. Oh, Abby's someone that we should be paying attention to. Abby's doing something really important here. And that kind of kickstarted this whole chain of other things that helped Abby get, uh, get reintegrated back into working productively with the team. Hmm. 
That's really interesting. I, I wonder how much of that is almost even the language used, you know, that the, the power of words, right? Um, that's, yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. I mean, even just latching onto that, that role for her and that identity and, and identifying her publicly as the scrum master without any debate or discussion was a really powerful thing. Yeah. 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 No, that's awesome. So this is, uh, your paper from 2021. Um, this is what we're kind of seeing is, uh, an arc in definitely qualitative research, which is beautiful, but how, how does this fit into Jason's story of his career and how, how did this research come about? How does it align with the stuff that you published back in 2009? Uh, even more recent stuff you've got, um, even later here in, in 2021, I think the understanding distinctions of worth, um, how does this all fit together for you? Yeah, great question. Um, and it, it also grows out of my experience as a practicing instructional designer. Uh, I, I just latched, and we've kind of alluded to it, I, I really latched onto this notion and it became very plain to me that strategies are not the distinguishing factor. You know, a good design and a bad design you can't tell them apart based on the instructional strategies they're using necessarily. Of course, sometimes you can, right? But you can find good courses and bad courses that rely on the same strategies. You can find good designers and bad designers who do the same kinds of things. They follow the same process models and follow the same steps. So there's got, there's got to be another factor involved, right? Than just, oh, is this the right technique? Or is this the right process? Or is this the right method? Or is this the right theory even? Uh, and so what really drives me is being able to articulate a different kind of vision for um, wh why is good instructional design good instructional design? And why are good instructional designers good instructional designers? And I've become convinced it's much more about our practical know-how. It's much more about, you know, it, to use the more classically philosophical, the, the phronesis, you know, um, that, you know, that Greek term for wise action, good action, virtuous action. Yeah. It's much yeah. more about that than it is the explicit propositional knowledge that we possess as designers, or even as important as the skills are, those aren't the only things. And to our detriment, I think as a field, we focus on propositional knowledge and skills, but there's a whole way of being oriented to the world. There's a whole way of being in tune with the world. There's a whole lifestyle, if we can use that term, associated and I use that term lifestyle very intentionally, you know, a whole way of seeing and feeling and approaching the world and caring about certain things and not caring about other things that goes along with being a great instructional designer that through my work, I want to articulate and try to draw more attention to than, well, these are the skills we, we should be engaging with. And the, this is the kind of knowledge that we should be possessing as a designers. So how do we build programs for instructional designers then that aren't deterministic so that there's situations like what, what Abby was going through and, you know, still have space for, you know, the class on learning how to use articulate or <laughs> Photoshop or something the the hard skills, but there's so much more of this that is these more abstract 
you know, intangibles that you still have to be good at. You can, you can be fantastic in, you know, creating graphics, but that doesn't make you a great instructional designer. It makes you a great graphic designer. So how do we take that step in the programs for our, our current ID students and make them practitioners to, to make them to actually have a PhD, to actually be philosophically entrenched in what's going on. Yeah, it, it does provide me a good opportunity to clarify a few things, that question, Jeremy, because sometimes I kind of articulate my vision and agenda for people and they say, oh, well, so you're against teaching methods or you're against teaching skills. I'm like, well, no, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm not against no. those things. Yeah. Right. We, <laughs> we, we definitely need to be teaching designers um, you know, how to shoot a great instructional video, right? We definitely need to be teaching yes. designers uh, learning theories, right? We, we definitely need to understand the difference between a behavioral and a cognitive theory or a, you know, more situated learning perspective. Absolutely, we, we need that knowledge, but the knowledge um, has to be deployed um, through, a, through a person who is a certain kind of person. So deployed is probably even the wrong term there, right? I would I, maybe even to correct that, I would say that the knowledge has to be expressed by a certain kind of person. The skills have to be expressed by a certain kind of person. One of the things I think we neglect, but would be very, very valuable, is just articulating the lifestyle that goes along with being a great instructional designer and modeling that lifestyle for people, which hopefully rings true to instructional design educators right now, because we're already modeling skills, we're already modeling knowledge. So why don't we just take the next steps of modeling for example, these affective dispositions. What do hmm. instructional designers care about? What do they see in a situation that maybe is there for everyone to see, but other people are focused on so many other things that they don't see those particular things? And maybe I can offer an analogy that makes helps make that a little more sense. You know, I have a friend in uh, my media development days who is a sound engineer, right? He has the same bones in his ear that I have, I presume. Right? I presume that the nerves are the same between my ear and his ear, but he would listen to sound and he would hear a rich palate that I didn't hear because I had never developed the, the sensitivities to the world through hearing that he has developed. And is that a skill? Well, there's skills associated with it, but it's also just a way that he is. That's just the person he is. It's not something he turns on and off. He just hears things because he's sensitive to them. He's sensitive to these fine grain discriminations uh, about very nuanced changes in sound waves that I'm not attuned to. And so, yes, there's skill there, but it's so much more than skill at the same time. And I, we need to talk about that uh, as instructional designers. We need to talk about that as instructional design educators, those kinds of sensitivities to the world, those kind of affective responses to the world. Those are really, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to think about that, that sound analogy for the next, like, you know, three months, and then I'm going to write a paper on it. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'll cite you. Um, I'll cite this podcast. Uh, but, okay, so one thing that, that uh, clearly in your, uh, you have a 2009 work about storytelling that uh, I, I love, I love that analogy in every way possible. And so one, one thing um, that I'm kind of interested in is we've talked a lot about, like, how do they how do we see the world, right? Like, you know, like how, how do we situate the instructional designer into a way to see the world? And in that article, you, you outline, and I think beautifully so, uh, like film production, right? And 
and like the the kind of science behind that. And I think that's a fantastic analogy. There's this, there's some really great stuff, you know, like the, I remember this one animator at uh, Disney. Uh, he was talking about why they animate things the way they do. And they say, you know, like there's believable and then there's there's like realistic. These are not the same thing. We want people to believe this is possible right and even if it's not realistic right and an obvious example of that is like you know flying around you know people want to you know and so um, to digress sorry uh you you're at brigham young and uh, brandon sanderson who is uh you know a sci-fi fiction uh, extraordinaire you know i think he's a wonderful storyteller and i think there's a lot of things within storytelling itself Right. That that is prescriptive in a way. Right. You know, you've got the hero's journey or save the cat or, you know, a story and B story. And I think we have this kind of like macro thing going on here where, yeah, you might need to go through these sequences, but maybe we don't know what those sequences are. And I think in instructional design kind of specifically and maybe the point of my random large question here is instructional designer is to Jeremy's point a second ago. All, you know, like, hey, here you go, do some captivate stuff, and here, do, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But to you wouldn't be able to necessarily say go to you know J.J. Abrams or go to Quentin Tarantino and just be like, yeah, by yourself make this entire thing. I wonder what your thoughts are on the role of an instructional designer when it comes to storytelling versus you know being to your point with Abby, like the Scrum Master. What's the difference between the storyteller? And the production manager, and how does an an ID kind of put themselves in those tracks, or or work between those tracks? Great question. A lot of really rich issues to dive in there. Um, one, I just will, I think, confirm one of the things I heard you say about when I wrote that that paper called imaginative instruction. Yeah, my intent was to say what do what do people in this craft, filmmaking, what do they see in the world? And maybe we don't see. And, and even if we maybe could say the words, right? Of course, we want it to be engaging and entertaining and fun. We say those words, but we don't feel the same things that they feel about it, right? They're driven by great entertainment. And there's something valuable and important there that I think we could learn from and, and you know, bear to understand a little bit more. Uh, now, another part of your question was, um, I think, about instructional designers maybe wanted to embrace a storytelling ethos and going into teams and, and maybe being kind of the team storyteller. Is that kind of where you were going with that? Yeah. Like basically, um, yeah, I don't know. I went, I went on a long journey to get there, but basically, <laughs> you know, you, you, let's say like in a real practical sense, you're a you know, person coming out of college, you're looking for ID positions, right? How do you, how do you handle the person that's going to go into that? Or how do you think we should handle the person that's going into that, uh, maybe new experience or a different experience and trying to figure out, are they the production manager here? Are they the scrum master, right? Are they the executive producer or are they the director of story? And are they the director of this? You know, like in the film industry, these are almost like segmented roles, right? But in, in instructional design, a lot of the times this is one person. So how do yeah. you think we should handle that? Yeah, that's a great, great question. You're right. They are very specialized roles, not just in film, but in, in many industries. You know, they're, they're, you're, you're, 
creative director or whatever, you know, your head of product is, is a very different role from your project manager. And, and I think you're right. We do tend to blur those a little bit in instructional design. We could, I think with, it would be valuable for us to articulate those roles a little differently. So uh, uh, there's a, a colleague, Brad Hokinson, who maybe a decade or so ago did a series of papers where he tried to distinguish some of these possibilities. You'd be instructional engineer as opposed to the instructional artist, right? As opposed to, you know, a couple of other flavors. And so maybe just talking about the value of these different roles and um, Jack of all trades has got a lot of instructional designers, great opportunities, but especially in bigger organizations, can you really get as far as you want to go if you're trying to play every role and trying to wear, wear every hat? And so a designer going into an organization may just want to say, what do I want to specialize in? Do I want to be that, that creative director, the head of story, you know, to use that analogy, or do I want to be the production manager? And both of those are very legitimate, important roles that instructional designers can bring things to that just a project manager off the street, street won't bring to the job, mm -hmm. right? Because yep. again, of what they're sensitive to, they're sensitive to educational issues. They're sensitive to issues of learning uh, and, and maybe some theoretical and philosophical issues based on their training as instructional designers that just, you know, the project manager from whatever other industry aren't sensitive to. So they, they do project management differently, but I think instructional designers could, could choose and say, I want to be this kind of designer, meaning project manager, or I want to be this mm -hmm. kind of designer, meaning, um, you know, the, the head strategist or whatever other term we want to use. Uh, sure. now the field, the field may not support that quite yet, but the first, the first step on the thousand mile journey, I think is that first one. Right. And so why not start talking about it first as, as the first step on that journey? Yeah. So I think that's a uh, perfect segue, uh, Jason, to, you know, uh, you've, you've put out a bunch of stuff. It, it seems like you've got a really robust program uh, that you're participating in at a high level at, at, at BYU. What's next? You know, what's next for you? What are your next pursuits? What are the things that, you know, we should be looking forward to in the future from you? Uh, yeah, great. I, I love talking about what I'm working on right now. I'm uh, actually involved in a, a fairly deep ethnographic study with online course development. And so I, I'm, I've tried to embed myself very much in the spirit of an ethnographer where, yes, I'm interviewing people. Yes, I'm collecting their documents. Yes, I'm watching them in meetings, but I'm also trying to participate, right? So I'm doing some course design along with them. Um, I'm doing some course evaluations along with them, right? So they can kind of initiate me or start to initiate me at least into their way of life. And, and what do I see? When that happens as you kind of my way of life and my background encounters theirs and uh, i was excited when i started this say a month and a half ago and i am super excited about it now because the findings were so so unanticipated some of the things i'm finding uh, just a couple of previews and these these are just early things i'm just really struggling to figure out how to articulate so this is like research behind the scenes right before <laughs> nice before That's the, the best part man yeah <laughs> before the professor's like really good at articulating these things right they have to go through this phase where they're just trying things out so forgive me if it doesn't come across as very articulate or if it's you know a little confusing or, or muddy because these are muddy issues i'm still trying to i'm still involved in the study i'm still trying to figure it out one thing that's become very very plain is that um course course design maybe much more than it depends on big events, depends on thousands and thousands and thousands of minute decisions that you would almost say is 
why, why, why don't we have a student employee do that? Why don't we have, you know, an intern do that? Right. So, I, and that was kind of the mindset I had. Why do, why am I seeing all these instructional designers wordsmithing the detailed instructions on the canvas page? Right. Why, why aren't they having a student employee do that? And well, maybe there's an argument in some cases they should be doing that, but also I'm seeing that's where the, the great course design emerges is yes, there's 500 of those moments in a row where they could have had someone else do it, but suddenly something pops up and suddenly they say, oh, wow, I've got to draw on my deep knowledge of learning theory here or my deep knowledge of instructional strategies here. This is suddenly in a moment, it's no longer a wordsmithing conversation. This is a real deep design conversation that we're having. And if they had just turned the whole thing over to a student employee, it would have just gone completely over the heads of the students. So there was even an opportunity there to do something more than just let's tweak the wording of this assignment. Wow. So, so something I'm trying to play with this. And, and I was talking to a colleague about it. I said, like, it's a waste of time until it's not. And there's <laughs> no real clues in advance. What's going to change it from it's a waste of time until it's not. You just kind of have to live through it is one of the themes that's kind of emerging through this study. Another theme that uh, is probably not unrelated to this other theme uh, that I just mentioned. Um, boy, their instructional designers are asked to do a lot of things. Back to your point a few minutes ago, Eamon, right? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that count as an instructional designer that you may not think count as an instructional designer, right? Yeah, yeah. They're the keep they're the keeper of the portfolio, right? They've got to. They've got to always be uh, on top of, is this course in production? Is this course in maintenance? Is this course in closing? Is this course in the opening phases, right? And, and can you hand that off? Well, again, maybe, but is the designer bringing something to this idea of being the keeper of a portfolio that other people could never bring to it? Um, they're, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of things that are doing. It's probably you know, too much of a deep dive to go into all of them, but... <laughs> Uh, I think the kind of the conclusion I'm starting to draw is when we study instructional design, often we study it from what we want it to be. Like we, we want in the past, mm -hmm. we wanted it to, we wanted it so bad to be this thing where designers just applied process models and we figured out, well, they, they aren't doing that. Right. We've known that for a few decades. Yeah. Now. But we still, <laughs> we still want it to be something, right. We want it to be this right. innovative, you know, creative, we're applying design thinking ideas. And again, yes, there are some of those things, but, it's so much more than that. So what counts as instructional designer? We have to let designers tell us what counts as instructional designer. We can't just decide what's an instructional designer and only look for those things. Right. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, I think we'll just have to have you back on when you're done with that. And we'll just talk about that for like three hours. I'd love to. I, I, yeah. like, kudos to the ethnography, because like I've always thought that that's like the most challenging to like really put yourself in there. Uh, because obviously you come with all these preconceptions, which you just naturally come with. I mean, you, you've lived a life, right? And now you're entering this new... I've always thought that's a a very like brave approach to doing research because obviously the, the rigor is quite high there, right? Like you you don't want to just... Uh, to, to get over your own... You're not going to be able to get beyond your own biases. You essentially have to bring your biases into it full frontal, right? And like, I think there's... I don't know. I've, I've always really respected that kind of form of research. So kudos on that one, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's, it's challenging. I mean, there are some days I'm waking up. I'm like, what, what am I doing? Why did I decide to do this? Uh, <laughs> I mean, anybody who isn't waking up like that probably just isn't really living a really interesting life. Yeah. Maybe you know, so. like if, if you so. aren't rethinking it, like, yeah. 
So those are the things that are uh, in the pipeline uh, that uh, I guess are coming in the, the coming months and years. Is there anything uh, that you want to plug at the moment? We're going to list your your three articles in the show notes for people to go and uh, pull up and read. Is there anything else that's... Uh, this This is where you get the Twitter, the Patreon... Lay it all out there. Where can we yeah. do, Where can we contact you? Oh, you know, man. Uh, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> we're going to replace I'm... your. Uh, we're going to replace your profile picture with uh, your your Venmo QR codes. Yeah. 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 Do you have like a, a low low key instructional like NFT kind of situation going on? This is the time, Jason. Ten thousand dollars, right, for this picture of my books behind me, right? So yes, yes. Um, yeah. So so I'm not active on Twitter, but I would love to connect with people on LinkedIn. I think you have the link. Maybe it could be part of a show notes or something. Uh, My website is jkmcdonald.com. I typically uh, post just research highlights of the latest project. I also post things from my teaching. So things I do in my teaching, uh, approaches, philosophies, and and things that I use as as my teaching is there as well. It's not really a personal thing. It really is just around the teaching and research aspects. Um, People can look me up on Facebook. I think if you just search for Jason McDonald, BYU, you'll find, you know, you'll find me. you'll know it's me because you'll see my office and you'll see an ear and, and the top of my head. And that's how you know that it's me <laughs> on Facebook. Um, yes. So that's, that's the way to, you know, maybe connect with me. I don't know that I have a ton of other things to plug. You know, we love people who may be interested just to check out our program. So education.byu.edu. And from there, they can just navigate and find the instructional psychology and technology department. And uh, a lot of us would even just love conversations on our faculty, um, just about interesting, fun, forward-thinking things related to where this field is going. Awesome. That's amazing. Jason, uh, a million thanks for sitting down with us today and and going through your research, uh, both current and future. Uh, I think really incredible, great voice in the field. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you both. I very much enjoyed the conversation. All right. So that was uh, Dr. Jason McDonald at Brigham Young University. Uh, thanks again for, for spending about an hour with us uh, chatting about all of your research. Uh, for everybody still listening here at the end of the show, we've got information on how to reach out to Dr. McDonald. Uh, of course, he he mentioned all of his uh, stuff during the the recording, but we've also got plugs uh, for, for links for all of his research, how to reach out to him here in the show notes. So um He's he's fantastic to talk to as you as you heard um, and doing really interesting research. So um, yeah. if if you're even adjacent to some of the stuff that he's working on, uh, I think he'd really love to hear from you. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, thanks for listening to episode three with us. We we always appreciate you listening to the show. If you've got ideas, uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, um, there will be some links in the show notes. Uh, if, if you'd like to talk to us about the research that you're doing, we'd love to talk to you. So yep, absolutely. Uh, thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. See you later guys.